Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. For today's episode, I had the pleasure to sit down with Sean Gresser, and Sean shares her story of her epic 32-hour nonstop solo of the Bass Strait and the amazing way she prepared for the trip. Sean delivers some great practical advice for anyone planning a trip of any size. So enjoy today's episode with Sean Gresser. Hi, Sean. Welcome to Paddling the Blue today. Uh, John, hello. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. So, Sean, tell us, uh, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about your personal paddling background. You've got a fascinating history, and, uh, and I'd love to hear it. I know our listeners would love to hear it as well. Okay, thanks, John. Well, actually, strangely, I grew up um, away from the ocean, well, relatively um, western suburbs of Sydney, sorry, and kind of landlocked. Um, and I guess if it wasn't for the good fortune of having a dad who decided taking the family camping every school holidays and getting out of the burbs was not only good for us, but a great excuse for him to go fishing all day. So fortunately, we weren't hanging around being bored all day and we made a a regular uh, habit of getting out south of Sydney down to a place called Shalhaven Heads, where we camp basically in a caravan park and it was next to the river, the Shalhaven River. That's pretty much ultimately where I was introduced to the sea and uh, was paddling, I guess, my first kayak type craft and canoe from about the age of five. But really, it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I really started to get serious about uh, sea kayaking. And after a period of working overseas and further north of New South Wales, again landlocked for a couple of years, I came back um, to Sydney. And after a few years of being here, I went out, I bought a sea kayak and I started paddling again, mostly on the harbour, protective waters. I knew really nothing about what I was doing. <laughs> and then shortly after that, I joined the local sea kayak club and you know, that was about 2007. And yeah, I just threw myself into as many club activities and training as I could manage. And so over those years, I also attained my Australian canoeing, uh, like sea guide and and instructor award and so I've made pretty active in that regard um, but really being based in Sydney very lucky to have a pretty amazing backyard to play in like we have sandstone cliffs which run the whole coastline of Sydney not only stunning but uh, yeah it's where we can experience all sorts of sea conditions and, and have a lot of fun to be honest I think it's it's here that I've developed many of my skills, the depth of my skill and exposure by, by playing in this backyard, you know, and I've been fortunate to be part of a weekly paddle during that time, which is, um, uh, if anybody listened to Mark Sundin's podcast interview, he would have described uh, these paddles really well, but um, it was being, it's, I think it's the consistency that you're, that you're paddling and, and in all sorts of conditions. We have big swell and rebound and uh, sometimes get out in big conditions. And, but on the other hand, I'm, I'm just as likely to, uh, to pop, a, pop some snorkeling gear in the back hatch and bottle of wine and paddle around a corner and pull up on a rock platform and, and uh, go for a snorkel and, and 
have a picnic, to be honest. So it's, it's not all big, big paddling expeditions here. But what really attracted me to, to kayaking, to be honest, and the reason why I, I ran out and grabbed one was touring, kayak touring, multi-day trips, expeditions. And really, to be able to do these trips, you, I think you need to develop your sea kayaking skills to a point where you're enabled to do that. So I haven't been fortunate to, to really paddle overseas apart from New Zealand. But Australia is a pretty big island and, and even even then I've only really explored the east coast. But that's that's quite a distance and there's quite a variable landscape and even just driving from north to south on the east coast is it's over four thousand kilometres. And I think Australia alone has about sixty thousand kilometres of coastline <laughs> to explore. So no shortage of opportunity here and and so I've been really lucky to have multi-day trips uh, from Queensland to New South Wales, where I'm based, to Victoria and down down to Tasmania. Yeah, I've got to say, Tasmania is probably where uh, my interest lies and where my heart lies for sea kayaking adventures and for, particularly for multi-day trips. Tell our listeners a little bit about Tasmania. Kind of what is it that drew you to that area? I think it's the wilderness, the remote uh, seascape landscape. Uh, two things. One, I have a background in uh, environmental science, biology, and studied at Sydney. And my first uh, love was for nature, and then combining sea kayaking and uh, accessing some of these uh, more remote, not, not completely remote in, in Tasmania, but. Um, uh, and also, as opposed to northern Australia, where it's hotter and more humid, <laughs> and uh, I think my, my heritage, I'm more suited to colder climates, uh, so that might be a bit of a bias there, but it has a bit of everything, so it's not all big seas, remote, inaccessible, <laughs> that, that's on the west coast of, of Tasmania, you can certainly find some beautiful estuaries and bays and mountains, and the landscape is just stunning. You've had some, some quite a few experiences down in that area, and uh, one that we were planning to talk a little bit about today was the Bass Strait. So we've got listeners from all over the world, and maybe if you could give our listeners a little bit of background on what is the Bass Strait. Yeah, so if you were to think of Australia, if you bring the continent even into your mind's eye, a map of Australia, or even if you pop on your phone or your computer, You'll see the mainland uh, of Australia and down the southeastern corner is Tasmania. We've just spoke about an island. And in the waterway between the mainland and Tasmania is called uh, Bass Strait. Uh, essentially, it was a, a, a land bridge. So Tasmania was connected <laughs> to the mainland uh, up until about the last ice age, which was about 8,000 years ago, I believe. And that's where that land bridge was flooded. and. Uh, there are a few remaining islands in that land bridge. Um, so you've got some islands on the east, eastern portion of Bass Strait, King Island to the, the to the west, and and obviously so Tasmania is still part of the continental shelf of, of Australia. So the Strait itself, so direct, I guess the shortest distance from the bottom of Victoria, which is the state um, in the southern part of the mainland of Australia. If you drew a straight line across the Bass Strait, its shortest distance is, is about 230 kilometres. And then it's, so the top is about 400 kilometres wide, and then it narrows as you come down to Tasmania. It's probably about 300 kilometres. So if you've got that block in your mind of area, so, so roughly a four by 300 kilometre block of land, 
and it's relatively shallow compared to the the deep um, ocean either side of that strait so that that can generate some very interesting sea states so with the geology the geography the weather conditions you've got the, the southern ocean coming in from the the west generating um, current uh, and swell and then you've got uh, the pacific coming over from the east so it has a reputation being quite notorious and it can generate uh, like I said some really tricky conditions and from from an Australian perspective most Australians are familiar with Bass Strait because of a uh, annual yacht race that that occurs here every year from Sydney to Hobart uh, on Boxing Day unfortunately uh, it may have you may internationally be aware of this because back in 1996 there was a, a very formidable tragic year where uh, there were six people caught out in severe weather and, and lost their lives during that race in that year and 55 people were rescued and it was Australia's largest maritime <laughs> rescue uh, in history so modern history and of course you know the strait is littered with uh, previous shipwrecks and all sorts of stories so it, yeah it's, it's kind of got a bit of a formidable reputation but it, it attracts people every year whether you're sailing and um, or kayaking. So I understand your your quest to cross the Bass Strait started in say 2009 I believe it was so let's talk a little bit about that 10-year lead-up. Um, I know you've had multiple crossings of the Strait is that correct? Yeah so it, so again if you I perhaps didn't describe it so well but if you look at the Bass Strait there are islands to the east One's inhabited called Flinders Island, and there's a Kent group of islands pretty much in the middle to the east, the Ferno group, which includes uh, Flinders Island. And uh, to the west is a main island called King Island and a little group called the Hunter group, which is to the, the south, uh, sorry, to the, the northwest of Tasmania. So you can attempt to cross Bass Strait using the island groups, and that's relatively common to do that using the east side of the, the Bass Strait. So you can go from Victoria um, via these islands across into Tasmania. However, there's still open, open, uh, sorry, large open water crossings, like um, 60, 70 kilometres is the largest one if you take the, the island crossing. And um, yeah, it's about eight days of paddling, so just day trips to get to these islands. Yeah, so every year you'll have uh, a group of um, kayakers or paddlers uh, attempt and do this trip. It requires a lot of obviously planning and preparation and so back in 2009 I planned to, to do this trip and I eventually did that in 2011 so I, I, I took off from Victoria on my own uh, all my camping gear and probably pretty green back then as well uh, not as experienced as I, I was 10 years later but um, but it feels very adventurous, so it's, it's attractive because I feel like it has a bit of everything. So you've got um, going from island to island and some of those islands are not inhabited and you've got to really be aware of the weather and the conditions and be self-sufficient and yeah, so that, that was the 2011 indirect crossing of Bass Strait. And I must admit during that, that crossing 10 years ago, I did I, I remember sitting back and thinking about the expeditions and, and you know, the earlier explorers coming through that part of the world without any maps or forecasts or and how on earth they managed to negotiate 
something so unpredictable as, as Bass Strait. And then I also reflected on the fact that there was two people who'd, who'd actually had done a direct crossing of the Bass Strait, so just paddled without going via the islands, had just started their journey in Victoria and um, just started paddling and didn't stop and, until they got to Tasmania. And I must admit, um, you know, when I was reflecting on those two people, one of them was Andrew McCauley, who people may be familiar, who paddled to New Zealand from, from Australia and almost made that trip. Sadly, he perished before arriving to New Zealand. And Andrew was the first person to do a direct crossing of Bass Strait back in 2003. And then five years later, his friend Stuart Truman uh, did a direct crossing in 2007. And I must admit, on my, my trip back in 2009, I was reflecting on that and thinking I, this, it would be impossible. To, you know, it blew my mind back then that, um, that, that you could do such a thing, that you could get in your kayak and not only negotiate trying to do that stretch of water in one go because it, it, it's quite difficult to time, but, um, yeah, just be sitting in your kayak for, for basically two days <laughs> without, without getting out. So that first crossing, um, how many days did you do, did you take for the first crossing? Oh, yeah. So it, it was a 19-day journey with really only nine of those days where I would have been paddling. So the idea is you you wait for a weather window and you, you start um, your journey and you make it to the next island and you wait for another win weather window. So you may have to wait on some of the islands for several days before you can proceed. So that that's what makes it a great trip because you could be uh, you don't know where you'll you'll be for several days and um, hopefully you've, you've organized enough water and provisions but uh, so it can be a little bit um, stressful if you certainly if you get stuck <laughs> uh, too early on in the journey or uh, in my case I was lucky I, I managed to get on to Flinders Island before I had a, a pretty big weather system pin me down for about six days and Flinders is inhabited. So being a, a solo uh, female paddler, <laughs> I, I really had the advantage of a lot of locals being quite interested in my journey and also wanting to, to look after me. So I, <laughs> for a very wild expedi expedition, I, I, uh, I found myself <laughs> eating um you know, sleeping in people's houses and eating fresh food. And, <laughs> and um, so I felt a tad little bit guilty at one point having this uh, rough exposure across Bass Strait. But, but that, that's part of the, the fun of the trip. You, you don't know who you're going to meet, where you're going to end up, what adventures you're going to have. And, um, and I think everybody who's done that trip, and I have several friends in our kayaking, tribe who, who've, who've done that trip and everybody has a different story and experience and and I'd love to go back and, and uh, do that trip again actually and it doesn't have to be solo so so and you can do it from the south you can go south to north it's just uh, logistically we, we live in the north so we tend to go from north to south. So you mentioned a trip didn't have to be, have to be solo there's lots of groups that do it but you've done both of yours solo so why solo? Well you know I used to to joke and say, well, you know, got no friends, so you just go solo. No, it's, um, <laughs> I'm lucky. I think, fortunately, I, I like solo paddling and I love group paddling. I love sharing trips with people too. And I know people who are not comfortable doing solo trips, whether it's a day trip or, or a multi-day trip. And I, I feel really fortunate that I find that I 
benefit differently from both experiences. And certainly doing a trip like that solo, it feels very adventurous. <laughs> I feel like you, you, you experience something about a trip, um, about the landscape, about yourself, more importantly, that you just wouldn't have that experience if you, if you were always within the company of others. And, um, and, you know, in some ways it can be more intense and perhaps less, less fun in the sense that you, you're more on edge and <laughs> you, you, you feel more vulnerable at, at times. But, and you're certainly alone, but you don't feel lonely. Like, I think there's a big distinction to make between solo paddling and like, or, or solo adventures, whether it's, it's hiking or... And you also you have to do all the, the, the preparation has to be spot on. Like when you when you go on a group, um, if you're a bit sort of dusty on perhaps your navigation or <laughs> or you, you didn't quite do your homework on on something, you sort of you've got the benefit of the group to rely on. When you do trip solo and particularly serious ones, I feel like it's it's the spot you can't hide. You really need to be across everything and there's and that, that's part of the fun of preparing for a trip. It, it's, you have to break it up and prepare for not only your physical self, but all your skills, your navigation, your mental health. And then I feel the, the, the experience is quite rich for that. You've, you've, it's all your work. It's all your planning. It's all your decision making. It's, you, you can't hide. And then I feel... Yeah, I think the word adventure would, would sum it up. That right. feeling of, if, yeah, heightens that sense of adventure for me when I'm doing solo trips. So your first crossing occurs in 2011, uh, and then your most recent crossing, uh, that, so that was the indirect, so your direct crossing happens in 2019. So why did it take eight years? Yeah, <laughs> yes, it's, um, well, as I mentioned, when I was reflecting on people like Stuart and Andrew having uh, not only attempted but, but succeeded a direct crossing. So back in 2011, uh, you know, there's absolutely no way that I thought that was um, something that I would want to do or would be possible, to be honest. I, I, you know, I'm not particularly, you know, I, I'm not a frayer <laughs> in terms of uh, I, I, I thought such pursuits were left for big hairy-chested men like uh, Stuart. <laughs> so, um, so just from a could-I-do-it perspective, I didn't think it was possible. And also I thought it was, you know, obviously back in 2011, you know, doing an indirect crossing of Bass Strait was pretty out there for me. I, I felt that that was, was quite enough. But interestingly, it kind of evolved from a, a lifestyle, uh, practical uh, urge uh, that, it, that evolved I went from being a, a field ecologist where I had a, a, um, a regular job, where I had a salary and predictable holiday time that I could take off and plan these trips and go on expeditions. But then around eight years ago, I decided to go back to study and retrain and basically change careers and professions. And now I'm a manual therapist, I'm a fully qualified structural integration therapist, but we can come back to that. But it also meant that suddenly... Um, studying full-time and, and, and working and studying and really committing to this career change, I, I suddenly found that I couldn't just take off on, on long trips and, and adventures and I was really craving sense of, yeah, adventure, I suppose. And then my thoughts drifted back to 
Bass Strait and I thought about a Western Crossing, which is a more difficult undertaking than Eastern Bass Strait, but it would be shorter uh, <laughs> in terms of not being able to take much time off from, from work. And then the, my thoughts actually turned to perhaps attempting a direct crossing because, well, you only need to take less than, you know, a couple of days off uh, <laughs> to go down and, and, and do the do the trip and all the preparation could happen in Sydney where I could still be uh, um, working and studying and but then in the background I'd be working away on another adventure so oddly the motivation came from more of a, a logistical lifestyle <laughs> restriction of, so but funnily enough that was back in sort of 2000 and 15 really when I, I had the, the thought to do that and as I found out later it's actually a lot more difficult than I originally thought <laughs> which is why eventually I didn't actually make the crossing until 2019. So you go from a 19-day uh, a crossing to a 32-hour solo crossing non-stop. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about that particular crossing, the 2019 crossing. So as I said, if you, if you draw a straight line from Victoria to Tasmania, um, it's about 220, 30 kilometres. Or actually, if it's a straight line, it's actually about 215 kilometres. And so, yes, you, you can get in your kayak and um, literally do that distance in two days. However, <laughs> being able to pick a weather window and be logistically um, in, a, in a situation where you can be at the right place at the right time with the right amount of preparation uh, the right weather window and then to be able to do that is uh, as I found out is almost impossible <laughs> so <laughs> it, um, <laughs> it was a bigger challenge than I thought but nonetheless I, I, I really wanted to, to give it a go and so I started doing a lot of training back at my home in Sydney where a lot of solo um, <laughs> paddling along the coastline here and uh, I really had to focus on from a, just a fitness point of view, how do I how do I prepare my body for literally uh, not only sitting in the kayak for for two days straight, but um, yeah, paddling nonstop more or less, and um, just taking small breaks. I would say a trip like that is it's you're kind of at the limit of what's possible with not modifying uh, your kayak in any way, when you're not having to set up the kayak for taking long long breaks, like rests if you wanted to actually sleep. So that, you know, just being able to get in your kayak unmodified and, and paddle in such an exposed part of the world, I would say that that's pretty much the limit for, for me at my point. So I planned the trip around not modifying the kayak in any way, where I would just continually paddle throughout the, 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 the day, the night, and the following day without needing to try and take an extended break. And I think if you find, you know, if you look at other uh, endurance events or, or pursuits where people do 48-hour uh, challenges, that's exactly what you do. You, you just try to, to go non-stop. <laughs> um, and, and I think you can pull off one night. It's only if you were heading into a second night uh, where you'd need to have some set up where you'd have to have a, have a proper break. So my training was about how do I get in the kayak and paddle non-stop for more than 200 kilometres. So that's from a physical perspective. 
then there are many, many things that you need to think about in terms of the risks involved and how you're going to mitigate those risks. And being on your own just heightens all of those aspects. So you do need to prepare very carefully. <laughs> so it's things that you wouldn't think about necessarily on a group. Just small things like what if my, my rudder gets jammed or I, I just have a, a small equipment failure or you, you've got to make sure everything's perfect more or less. So the, the Bass Strait, I think what makes that particular crossing quite difficult is the exposure. You're completely and utterly in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> At yeah. one point you're 100 kilometres from, from land you're on your own and you're on you're in the middle at night so the hardest part about the crossing is the night time aspect and so in my mind in my planning um, particularly picking a weather window in my mind the business end of that paddle is the night time I, I broke it down <laughs> into even though it's only a, a 32 hour paddle <laughs> I broke it down into to, to pieces and to small chunks where in some ways, the, the, the first day was just paddling to the start line. <laughs> so that first 80 to 100 kilometres was just getting to the start of the project, <laughs> which was the, the night time. <laughs> so, okay. so, yeah, so I felt it, in my preparation, I felt that, yep, that, that's no problem. Get in your kayak, paddle 100 kilometres. Uh, and then as the, the sun the fades and you go into the night, to me, that's where the, the real project well, the real difficulty of that crossing begins. So were you truly solo or did you have a support boat somewhere along the way or was it just you out there? Uh, no, no, just, just me. So okay. again, coming back to yeah, what solo paddling, it's, it's about the adventure. So I think because of my science background, um, mm -hmm. I have a real sort of got this nerdy interest into the science of risk-taking and, <laughs> you know, the difference between, say, what what could be adventurous versus what could be reckless right so i'm actually quite conservative by nature and quiet I, I feel i feel quite methodical when it comes to considering from from an outsider's point of view you might expect me to be a bit of a daredevil um, you know, jump off cliffs or <laughs> be the first one going over a rock garden or but um yeah it's quite the opposite it, uh, it, it took me like I said, for, from the time I first attempted to do this direct crossing, it took me four years before I actually went down and did it. And it's be mainly because I didn't want to take any chances. And yeah, to be honest, it's um, the, the most difficult part is deciding when you will start to paddle based on the weather window. So yeah. I guess it's analogous to shouldn't really bring up a mountaineering analogy for, for sea kayakers, but it's a kind of analogy, analogous to where people do a summit push on a, on a high mountain, where you're, the whole preceding moment that the trip is positioning yourself for a summit push. So the, the hiking in and, the, you know, particularly with Everest, they're going up and down and dragging equipment up and down and setting up like different camps along the way. In some ways, this trip felt a little bit like that where that final summit push, that's the, that's the risky part. That's where you've got to be at the right place at the right time and wait for that weather window. And everything has to be aligned and you have to have uh, all your ducks lined up before you can give it a go. And, and because it's quite a, if you mess that up, the exposure is too extreme. You, you have to 
nail the, the weather window in particular. Otherwise, um, yeah, you could perish. So <laughs> just, just to put it, put it out there. Yeah. Um, and the, yeah, quite careful. Yeah, the consequences Sorry. are real. So, um, so tell us a little bit about some of the, the risk assessment process that you used to, uh, to on this trip. Yeah, I think I, I was trying to think uh, before about how do I sum up to somebody the, the complexities. Like the, it's, a, it's a really multiple multi-variable preparation pro- process and I think you could think of the obvious ones where you know there's the, the physical preparation where you've got to be physically prepared to paddle such a long distance and then you have to have your physical skills prepared so I always say to somebody if you want to be prepared for something like this when you're um, training and practicing in your backyard you know your level your skill level and what you're training in, the conditions that you're training in, has to be much higher than what you're prepared to paddle or you know, expose yourself to on a, on a much more serious exposed um, situation. So, so that, that's one aspect of it. And then having that current, like, so you have to be paddling a lot, you have to be um, pushing your skills, you have to be practicing you know, things like uh, you know, rough water skills and rolling and um, self-rescue and things like that. So they're all, uh, I would say, that's pretty obvious and goes without saying. Then there's paddling at night or negotiating navigation uh, where you can't see anything, <laughs> like, which was pretty easy, to be honest, because it's an A to B <laughs> pursuit. I was, I was pretty much on a, a, a north, direct north heading. Um, but at night when it, it gets, um, it can get disorientating. And yeah, so you really... Have to have so I described to somebody it was kind of like trying to cross a road and you have a pendulum that's swinging back and forth and you've got to dodge that pendulum so you have to time it so that uh, as you walk across you, you don't get wiped out but except this is like having multiple pendulums or swinging back and forth and at different different rates and at different trajectories and each of those pen, pendulums represent a variable that you need to concentrate on. So one pendulum is your physical fitness. The other one is uh, the weather, understanding forecasting and picking the weather window. The other one is your skill level. The other one's uh, logistics, your equipment, things like that. So if you're just focusing on your fitness, whether I can paddle 200 kilometers, but you really lack uh, the preparation in reading the weather and predicting forecasts, and then that one's going to wipe you out. <laughs> So that's the best way. So you you really you're forced uh, on a project such so serious like this. You you're really forced to be quite careful about preparing for everything, and you can't leave any any of those areas too undercooked. Yeah, like I said, and, and the difference between doing a solo attempt rather than sharing the experience is that you know that you you can't leave anything up to. To anybody else you, you either have the preparation or you don't yeah and there's also something to be said for you know you know your you know your own limits but if you're with a group you may not know the the limits for the rest of the group members yeah i mean i i think solo paddling is a whole topic on itself yeah because most people would make the assumption that you're much better off in a group but to be honest that you can have a lot of liability <laughs> in a group as well yeah. so and so it, one argument can be that going solo versus a group, it kind of neutralizes in some way. So you could have other problems going in a group that you're not going to have yeah. being solo. But 
doing these solo pursuits, it really does force you to be, uh, yeah, there's nowhere to hide. So yeah. it forces you to be prepared, I think. Yeah. So I've talked with quite a few paddlers who've done some incredible solo trips, and most of those occur over several days with breaks in between each paddling session and then opportunities for human contact. And, and your trip, this one in 2019, did not have that. So curious, what goes through your head for 32 hours solo? Uh, a lot more than you think. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know I have often had people ask this, you know, would you do long trips on your own and wouldn't you be bored or what do you do to entertain yourself? And, and that's, it's the one dis, that's the one difference, I should say, that when you're solo, you're never bored because I feel you have to be more present than ever. Like there's, I, I don't want to, to not notice something. I don't want to drift off and it's more of an acute situation. So you, you kind of feel more attuned to your surroundings in your environment. And to be honest, on a, on a, a crossing like that on such a serious undertaking, there's so many points where you're, you're paying attention to something for good reason. So when I first left in the first, you know, 40 kilometres of that trip, I, um, I was, you know, obviously focusing on how much I was being pushed around by by the, the prevailing wind, for example. I didn't want to get pushed too, too far off course. And also I didn't want to overcompensate for that as well. So that, that's a bit of um, concentration to think about. So to, just to go back a step, so when I first left for the, the, on the first day, it was, a, it was forecasted to be sort of a, a 15 to 17 southwest dot, not wind. So that can be quite a challenge for if people are not used to open ocean paddling. But the key to that forecast was that those winds were going to assist me during that first day because uh, they were sort of behind me and then they would ease overnight so coming into the evening the wind was predicted to ease and then be quite um, calm the next day so focusing on you're in the middle of the ocean and I've got a heading but then how's that and, and, and I've got a landing that if I miss I've got a lot, lot more paddling to do if I don't arrive where I want to be so that first day uh, I really had to focus on how much is the wind going to push me off course um, so focusing on that but then actually there's things like because it's such a, a long way to paddle and you're very exposed and you can't sort of get out for a bit of a stretch or something goes wrong or say you get a cramp or get a rub that you've ignored and then it turns into a sore or and that can be quite debilitating so I'm actually paying quite a lot of attention to my body and how I'm feeling uh, and then I'm trying to jump on something before it becomes an issue so just sort of things I just mentioned. I'm really conscious about moving as much as I can, which does kind of does sound a bit odd. <laughs> I mean, and, and quite frankly, sitting in a kayak for 32 hours straight is it's a pretty silly thing to do. <laughs> They're not really designed to to spend the weekend in and not not get out. <laughs> so, and it doesn't matter how much training you've done and how many long paddles you've done during the day. You, you're not really sure about how your body's going to cope with that so in my mind and be, be, because my you know, my new profession was focused on human movement and and um, the body I had the advantage of being quite aware of little niggles that might pop up and, and like I said I'd stretch a lot I would move I would I'd try and jump on something before it was too late so that to me that that's a quite a big part of staying focused 
Ah, and then there's the biological aspect. There's there's the I don't does it sound like it would be full of <laughs> many entertaining experiences, but given that there is nothing to see but ocean. Yeah. Uh, but there's, there's quite a lot of wildlife. You, you get to see pelagic seabirds that you don't see along the coast. Like and surprisingly, just out in the middle of the ocean, they, I was still seeing fairy penguins, which they're tiny penguins that you normally see close to the, the shoreline. So 100 kilometres offshore, I would hear a, a small seabird, a penguin, just chip out or some of these small storm petrels. They're tiny birds just flicking along the surface of the water, you know, more than 100k offshore, thinking, how the hell <laughs> do they survive out here? And then uh, there was a, an albatross that was actually following me for, for quite some time. And it was late, late in the first day, actually, and I was just sitting having a... Uh, having a break and having a drink and um, that was probably one of the most alarming moments of the whole trip was when this albatross almost landed on the, the kayak so <laughs> I, I um never been that close to a, to an albatross but um they're quite a big bird and for, for something that big to suddenly sit on the kayak <laughs> I was I was thinking that, that that could have been it that could have been the <laughs> that, that could have been my, my biggest challenge for the trip. But, uh, and then I, you know, I saw a seal, I, I, I saw um, an orca, was perhaps the biggest hmm. surprise. It, it was just cruising past, I saw the dorsal fin, but nonetheless it, it did give me quite a, uh, a shock. <laughs> yeah, so that was quite a lot to, to stay focused on. But to be honest, as I paddled deeper in, in, into the Bass Strait and as, I, every, as, as every kilometre went by, felt more calm, I felt more peaceful. So thoughts of doubt or fear or worrying about, you know, equipment or the weather or all that started to fade and it felt very peaceful and it felt really, I know it sounds bizarre, but quite relaxing <laughs> to be there. So. Okay. so who would have expected uh, 100 kilometers offshore, nothing else around you, and an albatross possibly landing in your kayak becomes the, the, the most sketchy moment of the trip. So it's interesting. Um, so, <laughs> well, there was a, a bigger thing to contend with, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a oh, minute, so. Well, tell us. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> okay. So um, I, I talked about earlier the number of the various things that you might want to consider and the, the, some of the risks and how you might mitigate those and so I I was uh, this was about midnight and I'll go back a step one of the really f fortunate things that I had so if you consider night paddling the one of the difficulties is navigating a sea that's moving and if you if you can't if there's not much light that becomes more difficult you have to, to concentrate more and focus more and that can exhaust you quicker and so because of the difficulty of coming up with the weather window to pull this off. I, of course, I wanted some moonlight, but I couldn't wait for everything to be perfect. But as it happened, I was very lucky and very fortunate to just score a full moon that particular night that I crossed, which was fantastic. And it was quite a beautiful experience to, to be um, paddling across at night with a full moon. Uh, however, it was kind of almost too bright. <laughs> So sounds ridiculous, but if I was to stare like in the direction of where the moon was shining and then you, you see the, the, the beautiful um, silvery road lit up all the way towards you, that, that, that was lovely, but it was actually almost too bright to look at. So I had to really focus on not staring. And there's a reason for that, because one of the things that I didn't 
consider, uh, which used to bother me in my early days of kayaking, was the dreaded motion sickness. <laughs> so in my early days of kayaking, I, I used to trigger the odd bit of seasickness. But over the years with more kayaking and more um, awareness on my part, and even with all the night paddling I've done, I, haven't, I hadn't triggered motion sickness for years. And uh, unfortunately, after all day paddling, and then I'm now paddling into the night, and I'm now in the middle of the Bass Strait, 100k from anywhere, having a fantastic time, <laughs> really, really quite comfortable and quite happy. I remember reaching back, uh, put, putting something away in my day hatch, and, and then I turned back and checked, checked my GPS, and you know, I flicked my head torch on and I flicked it off, and then I looked straight up into the moon. <laughs> And that's when I felt it. I felt this. If anyone's ever experienced motion sickness or seasickness, you'll understand what I'm about to say, <laughs> where it's like a flicker of very unpleasant. Um, it's almost a, a vertigo that comes across and just a flicker of it. And then a sudden uh, uncomfortable <laughs> sensation <laughs> that really floods over you because, you know, once you've triggered motion sickness, it really doesn't leave you until you until you're fully on solid land <laughs> so so when I had this experience I went from absolute not a problem in the world thinking that almost this was too easy like that the experience was fantastic to now I have a problem because although in the past I'd never when I had been seasick in the past it, it had never developed to a point where I was incapacitated or completely you know, you know it, the symptoms didn't develop to a point where I was vomiting or but it really robs you of your energy it really really makes you feel quite miserable and <laughs> quite uh you know it, it you basically have a strong desire to just lay down and, and die <laughs> so <laughs> to suddenly have this um trigger of motion sickness and knowing that i would have it for the rest of the, the paddle it was quite a problem and mainly because I knew I wasn't about to, to finish in the next hour or two or I wasn't paddling along the coast of Sydney or had the support of friends and I thought I'm going to have to manage this now. I, I had um, you know, another sort of midnight and I, I, didn't, I didn't finish until close to 3pm 3 3 the, the following day. <laughs> so that's a lot of paddling yeah. to, to feel not well. I would say that was the one factor that I, I didn't think through and so I didn't have anything really with me to counteract that, those symptoms. How did you contend with that then over the next say six, 15, 16 hours that you had to deal with that? So in my mind I thought right the, the biggest problem uh, apart from feeling really lousy <laughs> was not allowing it to get any worse, not, not allowing it to develop to a chronic state where I might have started to to be physically sick and, and vomit because my in my mind I thought as long as I can keep drinking and keep hydrated I would be able to to manage one of the reasons why I knew I could do that is I had changed the way I because it for endurance events you, you may have remember people talking about how they fuel their bodies like different energy systems in terms of whether you rely on carbohydrates and sugar and high energy drinks and things like that or you can train your body to use fat basically to to burn uh, fat rather than sugar and it, it's quite a process you take some time to, to become fat adapted and to train um, so that you you're not reliant on on sugar and carbohydrates so this this can be sound quite new to people and to others it, it might sound so 
familiar. So as a side, I didn't try this regime to, to combat this particular problem. It, it was more, I thought it was quite a wise thing to do for an endurance event. So you're not relying on eating every two hours or sugary treats or etc. So as a, uh, I guess like a byproduct of eating this way, I was really fortunate because I couldn't eat. I was actually quite sick and I did have food to eat. But as it turned out, because I was quite fat adapted and I trained fasted and, you know, I'd, I'd had days, many days paddling where I didn't eat to allow my body to adapt. So as it turned out, I was fine. I think had I not have had that particular adaptation and if I was relying on refueling through eating things like sugary gels or you know muesli bars or the typical things like bananas and things like that if I was relying on refueling that way I don't think I, I think I would have been in a lot of trouble so that's a spin-off thing that I, I discovered inadvertently by triggering the, the motion sickness that I inadvertently had prepared <laughs> for that event uh, by yeah, changing my my eating regime. So, so why was this trip important to you? Or the, the bass bait in general, the bass trait in general, why was it important to you? Just reflecting on what I said earlier about um, how I arrived at the motivation to, to attempt the crossing. was in, Initially, I was sort of stuck where I couldn't take off on a long trip and join others and things like that. But I... That, evolved like so there was a time where that <laughs> that period shifted and I, I did have more time and I, I was doing more trips and sharing trips in southwest Tassie and things like that but funnily enough the idea of doing the crossing kind of stayed with me and it stuck in my mind which I found quite curious and I think it's because I thought about it for so long and I imagined having the experience and what that might bring so it sort of stayed dormant there for a, a few years and but it wouldn't go away <laughs> so I found that quite interesting in itself that the challenge came up for a very different reason and then it, it stuck stuck in my mind and I think perhaps you know it, it's part of my nature I think I was doing crazy things like this since I was a kid <laughs> and I, I was surprised that I was still attracted to the idea of um, literally being in the middle of the ocean <laughs> alone at night <laughs> and that that seemed very alluring to me <laughs> so <laughs> I found um, that I really wanted to have that experience I wanted to feel what that felt like to be in a sense of being in an environment where it's you know it's, it's quite an unforgiving um, serious but but to experience the beauty of that and that you can only have that experience if you have considered not being reckless and actually I've just remembered I actually called the I gave the, the project a, a name and I, used, I, I called it two degrees of freedom project or my two degrees of freedom paddle <laughs> it's funny because basically a degree a degree of latitude is 111 kilometers and since the trip would be basically double that so it's about 220 kilometers that was an obvious idea but then the freedom aspect came into being as a, I could think of nothing more than the freedom one could have being immersed in such an environment on your own. That incredible sense of freedom. And also the other aspect, it's reflecting on my sort of nerdy biological statistical background where degrees of freedom is basically a statistical concept where it's the number of independent ways by which a dynamic system can move without violating any constraint 
um, imposed on it. And that, that's the number of degrees of freedom. So <laughs> it, it, it might be a bit abstract for some people to, to get their head around. But I think that sense of having a, a project like that and you break it down and prepare for each of the, the parts and then put it back together again and then literally be in a situation where you feel really comfortable about being in that environment. That was pretty liberating, to be honest. So I did this trip, by the way, from Tasmania to Victoria, from south to north. And I remember landing uh, in the afternoon and I was met by a good friend of mine and it felt really wonderful and it wasn't until the next morning and I got up on my own and I went for a walk. I've never felt more relaxed. <laughs> I've never felt more peaceful in my body, and which is ironic after experiencing something that for most people would perhaps put more fear <laughs> in their minds. Um, so it is, a, it is a paradox of fear, I think, in, in a story of of uh, two degrees of freedom. Actually, I, you've just reminded me, I, I remember just the summer before I did this trip, I was I went to the, the cinema and I saw, I watched uh, Alex Hanon, the, the, mm -hmm. the mountaineer. I watched the story Free Solo and um, I couldn't help but compare uh, to that what I was doing. I mean, I couldn't really compare, obviously, to what he was doing. <laughs> but I remember him saying that he said something like, isn't that the goal of many human endeavours, to push yourself to the point where you're experiencing something really beautiful? I remember that that really resonated with me and, and I could sort of relate to those sentiments and for someone who usually pursues his solo climbs very quietly and with care. And obviously, yeah, and I, I remember his words on fear and, you know, he, he said, you know, I work to expand my comfort zone and so that there is no, no fear there and and that I shouldn't go up there unless I'm prepared and comfortable and I'm not going to feel fear and you know, I'm not trying to overcome it but just try to step aside it. And, um, and obviously, yeah, I can't really compare to what Alex would have to, to do to pull that off. So unlike solo climbing, open water solo paddling, is, you know, it doesn't require perfection but it does demand a level of preparedness. Knowing what you know now, what would you do different? I would consider seasickness. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to, to be honest, I wouldn't change any other aspect to, of the, the preparation and, and doing the trip and what I got out of it. And um, but I, I would surely reconsider <laughs> the prospect that I might trigger um, the, the motion sickness. Yeah, that that by far was that would be my my error, uh, and I would consider fixing that one. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, but you know, to, to be honest, everything else—it's it's a great feeling when everything seems to fall into place, and you know that it's meant to be. I just realise there's a lot more aspects to the story and to the, the planning and the funny stories behind it, and and that that was all part of it. I guess the best way to think of it, it's like the classic iceberg analogy, where you see the tip of the iceberg and that's that's the success that's the that's the 32 hour paddle but there's this massive history and experience and all the people that you've bumped into and talked to and all the other trips that you had and all the other influences and that all that's sitting underwater so i think everybody's tip of the iceberg looks very different it doesn't have to be a a crazy <laughs> solo 32 hour paddle <laughs> across a notorious strip of water so, <laughs> 
I mean, <laughs> when it comes down to it, you know, you think about this trip and the the paddle itself, although it's 32 hours and 232K, that was probably the easiest part of the trip. It was It's all the things that that go into making that trip possible. It's all the preparation. It's all the risk management that you're dealing with uh, that makes all that possible. When it comes down to it, you're you're getting in the boat at the beginning of your day, and 32 hours later, you've crossed water and you're you're crossing land again. Um, you didn't see anything else yeah. in the meantime, but it's making sure that all those things that need to happen up front happen so you can hit land the second time. Yeah, that that's pretty much spot on. I you're, you're quite right. <laughs> um, I mean, it it was a bit of a logistical feat just to to literally. I mean, I I'm a two two hour drive. Uh, sorry, two day drive away from Sydney down to the, the northern aspect of Bass Strait. And as it turned out, I actually jumped on a ferry and went across to Tasmania and, and, and went from south to north because of the prevailing winds and um, the particular weather, wing, uh, weather window. But, yeah, so just being at the right place at the right time was very difficult, but you're quite right. That That's the point. That the hard part is literally positioning yourself to do that last push <laughs> so yeah that's that's the easy part <laughs> so, so. so what equipment yeah. did you rely on uh, for the trip i had my fast touring sea kayaks that, that i use which is designed and made here in australia it's a it's a sea kayak called the audax and uh, expedition kayaks here in sydney um, design and, and produce those and uh, it's a you know plum bow five and a half meter touring beast <laughs> for, for someone my size. It has enough enough stability for for a trip like that and um, enough um, speed. Uh, I guess you know if you you're thinking about the people doing some of these circumnavigation and crossings and you know thinking about people using the the rock pool turns and stuff like that. So it's sort of in that category where you'd be choosing something like that to do a trip like this but all multi-day trips and long crossings and, and, and things like that so you know i also have a valley um skeg boat and avocet and i have a surf ski and i use those uh toys for, for different experiences and yeah i'm really fortunate that we get to have access really to a diverse range of toys i also use a wing paddle and really, when you think about it, 99.9% .9 of what I'm doing is uh, forward stroke. <laughs> so, and the wing blade is, it really is uh, optimised for, for forward stroke paddling uh, as opposed to a flat blade. But, the, you know, there's disadvantages and advantages and the flat blade gives you other options for control and dealing with rough water and surf and things like that. So, as you can imagine, uh, on a quite a serious trip like that, I had... Um, a personal locator beacon which is um, you know you have there's a bit of background to that and you, you know you just don't grab one and take it you know you've got to have a float plan and a contact and in case that goes off like who does emergency services speak to and figure out a rescue plan and what are you doing out in the middle of the ocean etc <laughs> so that that's a whole other story in itself and it, it takes a bit of planning to do that and equipment wise Ah, you know, obviously you have a spare paddle <laughs> and you have options in terms of self-rescue. So that, that will vary depending on who you are, but that goes into a lot of your training. You can't rely on, you know, maybe the role, your role fails if you happen to capsize. And 
So you just have to have other options. And, and as it turns out, you'd expect on a 40-hour paddle, you'd expect to fall asleep at some point, which I did do, but I, I actually didn't fall in. So it was quite a struggle getting through the night, particularly after the seasickness. And then once dawn came, uh, super happy to see see dawn, but that's when I became extremely tired. So at first hour of dawn, I was so so sleepy, and yeah, there was a couple of times where thoughts start to blend into to dreams, and dreaming then ends up <laughs> into sleeping. And <laughs> and both those times, I nodded off. The paddle just happened to catch into the water, and um, it jolted me upright before I actually fell all the way in. But I was more than prepared to fall in I, I, I seriously thought that you can't avoid it once your brain wants to, to shut down and have have a break you can't control that it's sort of like uh, when people you know try to drive without taking a break and you think oh, I'll wind down the window and I'll get some fresh air and I'll slap my face <laughs> and you, 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 you know I certainly did that I stopped I splashed water in my face <laughs> like, and then I continued to paddle and then I fell asleep again so it only happened a few times but so anyway so I did prepare I thought that could happen and you end up in the water and, and, and if it's a cold shock or you have to come out of the kayak then you have to have equipment with you to help you um, obviously, you have to have a food and water plan, so enough water, but not um, too much that you, you don't want to weigh out the weight of your boat. And then the equipment is really about not introducing anything new either. So even your clothing doesn't change before the, the trip like this, so that you're using the same paddling keg or the same same paddling pant, nothing new, so that you don't introduce a, a novel a novelty to you your trip you know that you don't want to trigger a, a problem that you, you didn't foresee so obviously you've got to check everything and the in times your rudder cables your pedals <laughs> so any if anything were to happen in you're in the middle of the ocean you really your equipment needs to be reliable and you would do that in any case but it might not be so serious if you've got a buddy to help you out or you can pull over or you know reading stories where things go wrong it always starts from something very small. <laughs> so yeah, and it's always, that's uh, not the time to do, to experiment with uh, with something new. So, so how can listeners yeah. reach you if they uh, if they have additional questions? Yeah, John. So uh, yeah, obviously there's a much much more to this story. But um, if you're interested in any of the practical side of things or more details, you can uh, email me, shan.gresser, So the same name in the the podcast notes at gmail.com so it's a very simple way of reaching out um, yeah and yeah if you've got any questions about any of the aspects about I think a lot of people have actually are very curious about um, the dietary aspect of this for endurance events and with my science background I did do a deep dive into that and I, I didn't really talk about it much here or if you do happen to make it to Australia and curious about the Bass Strait and giving it a go I'm more than happy to, to talk more about that yeah, certainly. Uh, maybe I'll connect some information or collect some information from you uh, offline here and add it to the show notes about the uh, fat adaptation. We can put that in the show notes, and people can learn a little bit more about that as well. So it's been fascinating, uh, fascinating talking to you and learning about your trip and learning about your experience and your preparation and the risk management um, for the trip. So I really appreciate it. 
Um, I do have one final question, and it's a question that I ask of all of our guests. And, uh, and Sean, that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? There was two people who had done this direct crossing before. Uh, one of them was Andrew McCauley, but the second chap was Stuart Truman. And Stuart's a good friend of mine. He helped me a lot to prepare for this trip and was um, my contact should something dreadful occur. But Stuart... It's pretty amazing. He's he's actually <laughs> forget Bass Strait crossings. This guy's uh, <laughs> solo paddled around Australia, <laughs> so and the UK and uh, many other crazy trips. But um, he's actually written a, a book about his adventures called called The Long Way Around. And uh, yeah, he did that in 2010, 2011. Uh, but Stuart be a lot of fun to talk to. Full of lots of fun stories and. Um, you can imagine on a 17,000-kilometre <laughs> trip around Australia, there's a few a few stories there to be told. But I think, and also Stuart's from the UK as well, has a different perspective to to paddling, a bit of paddling in Greenland. So I'd invite you to reach out to Stuart. I certainly will, and I will uh, connect with you offline to get the contact information for Stuart and uh, make that connection. And I really appreciate that. And once again, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to learn about you and learn about your trip and uh, again, all the, the work that goes into making a trip like that successful. So I appreciate you taking the time with me to share the story for the world today. Thank you, John. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or white water, protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. There were so many great points in today's talk with Sean Gresser. I really enjoyed her approach to safely planning her trip, thinking of all the variables, even down to working on how her body adapts to use fat as a preferred energy source was outstanding. I really enjoyed her analogy of walking through a room of pendulums and having to negotiate that room without getting hit and drawing the parallel to trip planning and covering different variables. Kind of made me think of the old school game of Frogger. So thank you, Sean, for sharing your journey, and thank you, Mark, for the referral. For our next episode, we're going to continue the theme of talking to amazing women, and I'll be joined by Susan Conrad, and we'll be talking about her love for Alaska's Inside Passage. As always, thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.